0: Presented by DogNation.com. This is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. I like the NFL draft. I don't love it. Some of y'all love it because you love the NFL more than I do. I always find the NFL draft to be interesting because it's sort of like the, what do you call it, like a Venn diagram where you got got the college football fans on one side, the NFL fans on the other and the overlapping part of this is the NFL draft where NFL fans are curious to see the next generation of player in their league. And those of us who think of ourselves as sort of college football first and foremost, we sort of see this as the final chapter for our guys, whether it be guys who've just played in the sport or guys who've played you know, on these, you know, the teams, in this case, the uh, Georgia Bulldogs. And so I always kind of find the NFL draft to be somewhat interesting because, as I said before, it's kind of the overlap. Of all of that. And this year's draft is no different there for Georgia. Obviously, you expect the dogs to be a big part of this overall discussion. And one name in particular, I think, is going to be a very big part of that, and that's Brock Bowers. Now I want to begin today, just kind of kind of a fun way, with sharing with you some of the things that are being said about Bowers ahead of the NFL draft. But I want to kind of pivot this back towards what this means for Georgia in the upcoming season, because In a lot of ways, what's being said about Bowers is not just kind of an embodiment of what makes him special, but it's also a reminder of what also makes Georgia special there as well. And a pretty prominent voice is going to kind of give voice to that here coming up in a moment. Let me begin, though, with this. Matt Miller is an analyst for ESPN, one of these draft guys. And are you familiar with how the draft process sort of works on the inside? There's the idea of the draft grade. And you'll hear a lot of people talk about the big board. Uh, I had so-and-so player ranked number 21 on my board based on the individual grade. Personally, one of the reasons why I'm not as big a draft Nick as some people are is because I don't put a lot of faith or stock in anyone's individual evaluation of an individual player. I think those are all about 50-50 propositions. No one, I believe, at least I don't see a lot of evidence that anybody gets that far more right than wrong, you know, far more uh, correct than chance would dictate. So I don't take a lot of the board, individual draft evaluations, all that seriously. Maybe I should take it more seriously than I do. But I have a tendency not to buy into that too much necessarily. You may also be aware when it comes to like the sort of Draft level grades in the given year, you don't really have 32 players thought to be first round picks. You really only, given year, have like 16, 17, something like that. Obviously, there are 32 picks in the first round, but not all of them have a first round grade. I think that Matt Miller, according to what he's put out at ESPN.com, he's got somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 or whatever. And one of those guys is the former Georgia tight end, Brock Bauer. So I want to read to you what Miller says. Uh, about Brock Bowers, obviously a UGA fan. It's just sort of nice to hear people saying good things about your team and good things about your former players. And uh, Miller says the Bowers is not just a tight end. He's an offensive playmaker, uh, rough and ready, and unlike so many smooth-moving tight ends uh, of his day and age, he'll simply run over. you. basically saying he's got the physicality to match the athleticism. He says Bowers is physical but fast. He's as elusive as he is powerful. It's why he scored 31 touchdowns over three seasons. Of course, when you think about those stats, you know all of that. But Matt Miller kind of going on and on in talking about why Brock Bowers is such a prominent name in the upcoming NFL draft and why he'll certainly hear his name called in the first round and perhaps we'll hear his name called very early in that first round too. And of course, Matt Miller from ESPN, not the only guy speaking this way, a guy who's a little bit more of a college football analyst than he is an NFL analyst. Uh, Joel Klatt was also speaking on his show as of late. And not only does he see Bowers going in the first round, he puts Brock Bowers ahead of other wide receivers in terms of the ability to catch passes and kind of right there alongside a guy like Marvin Harrison Jr. as the best pass catchers available in the draft. Uh, you know, even kind of transcending the tight end position and putting himself ahead of other wide receivers who oftentimes get a little bit more of the attention on college football Saturdays. Joel Klatz got Brock Bowers you know, rated well ahead of all those guys there as well. And what Klatt says, echoing some of what we just heard from Matt Miller, but also taking it into a little bit different direction, is where I think things get really interesting. And in particular for Georgia in terms of what they're going to be like in their life after Brock Bowers. Let me let you hear a little bit of Joel Clatt here. And I think it sets us up for a pretty fascinating conversation about Georgia overall. Here's Clatt.
1: If he falls into the middle of the first round, that's a mistake. That is a mistake. I will be pounding the table on night one as I'm covering the draft for the NFL Network. I'll be there with Rich Eisen and Daniel Jeremiah and Charles Davis, night one, night two, in Detroit, and I'll be pounding the table. Somebody take Brock Bowers. I don't think he gets past Jim Harbaugh at five. I think the Chargers, and in particular Jim Harbaugh, understand the value of not just the tight end, but of this tight end, okay? So it's not just about being the best tight end in the draft, it's about being this guy. And Brock Bowers is that guy. This, this is one of the best college tight ends that I've seen in a long time. 175 catches and over 2,500 yards with 26 touchdowns in his three seasons at Georgia. He went 10 for 139 against Alabama as a freshman in the SEC championship game. He had the huge play against Ohio State. They don't beat Ohio State in their second national championship year in the, uh, what was that, the the Peach Bowl, I believe it was, in the semifinal, unless he makes that incredible extension for the first down along the sidelines. So you've heard it said before, sometimes, I guess, well, politics makes strange
0: bedfellows. Sometimes think NFL draft stuff can make strange bedfellows there as well, that you obviously, Georgia fans would love nothing more than to see Bowers drafted as high as Joel Klatt says he deserves to be drafted for all the reasons that Klatt just mentioned. Top five, that'd be awesome for a tight end to get that kind of draft, uh, you know, love for a UGA player to get that kind of draft love. You know, of course that's the case, but I do believe it would be a little bit weird for some Georgia fans to know that uh, perhaps the reason that Bowers might be drafted that high is because a guy like Jim Harbaugh, who typically speaking, you know, Georgia fans don't always have a lot of love for because a lot of folks in college football didn't seem to have a lot of love for Jim Harbaugh. The way that Bowers could get into the top five is to be selected by the new Chargers coach Jim Harbaugh. That would make for a little bit of a strange bedfellows moment, right? It's like, oh yeah, Bowers the top five and he's got to play for Jim Harbaugh who we don't really like, but now we have to like because Bar- uh, Harbaugh likes Bowers. That'd be a little bit of a, a weird thing overall and obviously we'll have to make peace with that when it comes to the NFL draft, but the, the the point we're building to here, though, is, is that Klatt wasn't necessarily done, though, in his discussion with uh, Brock Bowers and heaping praise. Because it's nice to hear guys say nice things about about your team. But it's important, I think, to understand, okay, what does this mean for us going forward? Where is this taking Georgia football in the future? And in discussing all of the nice things that Joel Klatt was saying about Brock Bowers, I think that Joel ends up making a larger point about football. And he's sort of saying this in reference to the NFL but I think it also carries a lot of weight from a college football standpoint there as well. Kind of speaking about what Brock Bowers meant in terms of why it was that Georgia was able to win these national championships on the teams that he played on. It wasn't just Bowers' big performance in the biggest games, the Bama, the Ohio State, some of that kind of stuff, but it was also what he meant for the Georgia offense and the playing personality that unit showed. This is more from Joel Clatt here. I find this to be really interesting. Here's Clatt one more time.
1: His ability after the catch rivals any of these wide receivers on the outside this guy is is phenomenal phenomenal he also by the way also had seven for 152 and a touchdown against tcu he's 6'4 240 pounds he's physical he's fast he catches the ball beautifully and smooth and he plays a position that i value very much why because that's who wins championships teams that have players like brock bowers The last eight Super Bowl winners had a highly productive mainstay in the middle of the field, a great tight end or a great slot receiver. And only one of them was a receiver, Cooper Cup. All the others had a great tight end, a great tight end. A lot of them all-time tight ends. A lot of them pro bowl tight ends, all pro tight ends, Kelsey, Gronk, Ertz. How is Bowers being undervalued right now?
0: Can we park on this just for a minute? Because I think that Joel Klatt here is making a point that I don't think you often hear other people make. The idea that a tight end is a key to a championship. We hear all the time, well, you know, you're going to have the great quarterback to win the championship. That's obviously what Patrick Mahomes is famous for. Stetson Bennett earned a lot of that love at Georgia with good reason. The old school, you know, you know, moniker of defense wins championships. We've all heard that all our, our entire life. Perhaps it seems a little less true now than it used to, but we know that defense was a very key part of both of Georgia's national championships. Those are the kinds of phrases that we're used to. Defense wins championship. Quarterbacks win championships. We don't often hear tight ends win championships. But Joel Klatt, who I think of as a pretty smart guy, even you know if we kind of butt heads every now and then, but I think of him as a pretty smart guy overall, he says tight ends win championships. I don't have time to play you uh, all the detail that Klatt went into about this on his show, but it is interesting how much detail he kind of dove into on the idea that that having that success in the middle of the field, being the kind of team that has the sort of weapon you can use in the middle of the field, being a hallmark, he says, of the great championship-level offenses at the NFL Super Bowl level and that oftentimes those are tight ends. Most of the time, that's the tight end, I the Travis Kelseys and the Gronks and the uh, guys like that. And if that's true at the NFL level, we would say to a certain extent that's also true at the college football level there too that the best teams have tight ends in fact look across the sport you know for a good while there especially at the early stages of the proliferation of the spread offense things like that for a while we saw a lot of teams not really using tight ends at all right we saw you know four receivers it's two slot receivers you know you didn't have a tight end on the field necessarily well I think the best teams have sort of shown you know to have the big athlete that also runs well is an important part of that and As Joel Klatt correctly points out, none of those teams or none of those players have been any better than what Brock Bowers has been for Georgia. So I think it's an interesting idea. I think it runs counter to conventional wisdom that as Georgia kind of rebuilds itself into a championship team again in the post-Brock Bowers era, that the tight end position could remain just as important as it ever has. Now, I think this is important and interesting for two reasons. Reason number one We've talked a lot the last 24 hours about new George assistant coaches in offense, making a big deal about Josh Crawford being here because the guy that he's replaced, Dale McGee, was an original part of the Kirby Smart coaching staff when Smart first came here in 2016. Crawford's obviously got big shoes to fill. It stands to reason you would generate a big conversation around him because of that. In addition to that, James Coley coming back to Georgia has also generated a lot of conversation too. Part of that's because Coley had been here previously and not everybody was happy with Coley's performance as offensive coordinator in 2019. And in addition to that, the wide receiver spot at Georgia has also been that one position group, kind of even looking on both sides of the ball, that at times seems to have a level of production or at least a level of perception about the production that lags behind the other position group. So a lot of chatter about Coley as of late. A lot of chatter about Crawford since he's been introduced uh, here officially by Georgia. But with all the discussion about what's new around Georgia and all the new assistant coaches here ready to contribute to UGA, guys like Todd Hartley, who've been here, remain just as important as ever, and if not maybe even more important because of the reason that Joel Klatt points out, that great teams, championship-level teams, have that great tight end that's not just a blocker, but a weapon in the middle of the field, and that Georgia, as it remakes itself into a new championship-style roster in 2024, that's going to be just as important as ever. It's one of the reasons why a guy like Ben Jurasek, brought in as a transfer from Stanford, a guy who played kind of an all-conference level a couple of different times there for the Cardinal. He's brought here to contribute to that. But also the guys who've been on the roster are going to be asked to, uh, to contribute to that too. I saw the other day Tom Fernelli. He's a writer for CBS Sports. He had a very interesting statement to make about one of Georgia's current tight ends for all the attention that Bowers has gotten, uh, all the attention the new incoming freshmen around Georgia uh, have gotten or or young guys sort of ready for their opportunity. Eurosec transferring in. He gets a lot of attention there as well. It's the guy who's been sort of the mainstay and ready to kind of take the next step who's also generating a little bit of chatter here right now as well. I want to read this to you, Tom Fornelli on Twitter, saying about uh, Oscar Delp. He says, I've been watching a lot of Georgia tape the last couple of days. And I'm all aboard the Oscar Delp bandwagon, which I'm pretty sure only consists of me and his family, he jokingly says. Uh, But Fernelli goes on to conclude that Oscar Delp won't be Brock Bowers in the passing game, but the run game will be a lot better. So in light of the fact that uh, Joel Klatt says, hey, championship teams have great tight ends. They have great weapons in the middle of the field. It's interesting to hear someone like Tom Fernelli saying the next great tight end at Georgia may be a guy who's already there in Oscar Delp. Obviously, no one's going to be Brock Bowers. That level of production may be hard for anyone to ever duplicate again, but truly valuable and a guy who the bandwagon could grow for over the course of the next few months, heading towards spring practice, heading towards the fall part of the year when the season actually begins. Of course, that's the case, which is why Todd Hartley's role in this team is going to be so important. Getting the most out of Delp, getting the most out of a transfer like Urasek, getting young tight ends like Jaden Riddell or or are lost and lucky, ready to go, ready to contribute? I take Joel Klatt very seriously when he says, hey, championship teams have a great weapon in the middle of the field. Oftentimes, it's a tight end. No one's ever been better at that for Georgia than Brock Bowers. Maybe no one's ever been better of that at, at that period in college football. Bowers may be the, the best tight end of all time. But finding another high-level performer at tight end or a collection of capable high-level performers at tight end is going to be a very important part of Georgia's championship formula as we head towards 2024. My name's Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Good to have you with us. No matter how you get to us today, across all video platforms, we start at 10 a.m., uh, they're 945 for our first and 15, dognation.com, the Dog Nation app. Radio Noon, Athens Sports Radio, 96. The Ref. As a podcast, wherever you find them, just really, really happy to have you as a part of the program here today. And I can't tell you about this yet, but I am really excited. In the coming days here on Tuesday, we're going to introduce a brand new sponsor to our show. We've had so many folks kind of behind the scenes, great sales staff, Faraday, Pippin, and others who work so hard for us to kind of make sure we uh, keep the lights on around here. Great sales staff helping us introduce you to some great companies. We've got a brand new Tuesday sponsor. We're going to be debuting here really, really soon. Can't wait to kind of roll that out. And I am just so, so thankful for the the people who have been with us for a long time and and, and shown that great loyalty and also excited about the new business opportunities going to be hearing about on dog nation daily here there as well just a great great relationship we've been able to forge with a lot of terrific uh companies that offer great products great services and we got a brand new tuesday sponsor here coming up for you very very soon cannot wait to tell you all about that but we're going to keep talking Georgia football here for right now, which for us includes Connor Riley coming up in just a few minutes. I mentioned the new Georgia assistant coaches. Josh Crawford coming in as running backs coach after having been at Tech the previous year. James Coley coming back as wide receivers coach. Of course, that's the guy we've had uh, here at UGA in the past. We'll talk to Connor Riley, but the latest on all that here coming up in just a little bit. Prior to that, though, i want to go around the doghouse. And we have the NFL draft on our minds here a little bit because the NFL scouting combine – is starting. And I was thinking this morning about the way in which last year Georgia was not just the lead story of the NFL combine, but the way in which Georgia really dominated that NFL scouting combine in terms of the performance of players, but also just the chatter about this on TV and the NFL network in particular. You're left to wonder, is there any chance that Georgia could sort of come close to duplicating any amount of that here this year perhaps you may have forgotten but if you'll remember you know Nolan Smith runs the the blazing 40-yard dash time and that you know gave him the chance to become a first-round pick which we were all you know just so happy about and you know Nolan was always just such a great spokesman for Georgia and proved to be that again in Indianapolis at the combine going back A year ago. It's just kind of a fun thing to sort of go back and relive. So if you don't mind, let's hear this from last year. Nolan Smith, after running a great 40 time, was kind of shown the reaction back in Athens at the football facility of some of his former teammates and how happy they were. And then Nolan kind of rolls into the best recruiting pitch for Georgia you've ever heard. This is just what the NFL Network was like during last year's combine. And you wonder, could Georgia do all of this all over again? Nolan from a year ago on the NFL Network. Take a look at the monitor here. These are your Georgia teammates uh, watching your forty, and
2: we can hear you. Oh yeah. That's Marvin Jones Jr. right there.
0: I know they was lit. Oh them. man, I love them boys, man. I can't wait to come back and see them, man. They all lit up. Are they? Are they? Are they
1: like? Where, where are they in here? Like my Georgia teammates? Yeah. That That was in, well, no, actually, we're here. So where were they? Where were they watching that?
2: They were in our locker room, man. Our locker room is amazing. You've seen all three of the TVs. If you ever want to go to Georgia, we just built a new locker room. We have a new waiting room. Um, Let me get my spill on Georgia. We have an indoor facility. We got an outdoor facility. We just put in a brand new restaurant. Let me say that again. A restaurant. It's called Bones. It's amazing. Shout out to Miss C. Cory, our nutritionist, and She's
0: amazing. We eat steak, lobster, the best of the best. So go, dogs, and go. I mean, isn't that amazing? Uh, I mean, go, dogs, go to Georgia, he says there at the end. And uh, just given the best recruiting pitch you could ever hear. And that's just kind of what the NFL Scouting Combine was for Georgia a year ago. Just sort of an unbelievable commercial for the program overall. And now it's getting ready to go again here this week. And you kind of wonder. As I said earlier, you know, can Georgia do all of this again? Georgia will have eleven guys there at the NFL Scouting Combine. We'll show you the full list here. Connor Riley had this; our our guest coming up in a moment. He had this the other day at a DogNation.com. Uh, you got Dajun Edwards coming in. You got Kendall Milton coming in, Ladd McConkey, McConkie, uh, Marcus Rosemey-Jackson, Brock Bowers, Marius Mim, Cedric Von Prahn, Zion Lowe, Kabari Laster, Javon Bullard, Tyke Smith. Now, different guys will do different things. At the Combine, some of these guys are going to save some of this for uh, Georgia's Pro Day coming up, which, by the way, we've gotten uh, new details about here officially there as well. But this became a huge, huge commercial for Georgia a year ago. A lot of these Georgia players would love nothing more than kind of make that the same way again for Georgia here this week. Obviously, Dog Nation going to have a lot of coverage. Mike Griffith's going to be there. Our good friend Kaylee Manziel is going to be on hand for a lot of that there too. And we hope that some Georgia players can make a name for themselves at this year's event, much like they did a year ago. Maybe somebody will also have a chance to provide that commercial for UGA, uh, the same way that Nolan Smith did last year on his way to becoming a first-round pick. Kind of a fun thing to go back and relive. Obviously, that's on tab. For this week there as well and that is around the doghouse here today on dog nation daily so a lot going on getting ready for the nfl draft looking back on a couple of coaches that george has hired uh never slows down around georgia football doesn't seem and the guy that stays on top of all of that is our good friend connor riley he joins us right now here today on dog nation daily And across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead, here's a DogNation.com insider. So bring on Connor Riley. I mentioned earlier that I'm not the world's biggest observer of the NFL draft. I follow it, I watch it. I probably don't live and die with every pick. Uh, Connor Riley, though, is the exact opposite of me. I would say he'd probably count this among his very favorite sporting events. So, Connor, uh, we showed the uh, list that you kind of put together there of the 11 Georgia players who received those combine invites, going back and reliving. One of the great moments of the uh, Combine in the past last year for Georgia. What do you think this year's Combine could have in store for these former UGA guys? And is there any chance that Georgia can come close to sort of replicating some version of the way in which was a little bit of a Combine takeover for the dogs last year?
2: I think it's going to be tough just because, again, you know, you have so many more numbers. Whereas this year, Georgia's fourth in terms of total uh, invitees sent tied with Texas. You know, Florida State has 12, Washington has 13, and then Michigan has 18 there. And, you know, I'm not 100 percent certain that Brock Bowers is even going to work out. And so if he doesn't go on Friday, I think that certainly makes it tougher to sort of have the advertisement that Georgia had in either of the last two NFL combines there. But there are also guys that I think are going to uh, make big names. And ironically, it's probably the biggest guy from Georgia at the combine and probably the smallest guy at the combine in Amarius Mims and Lad McConkie. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll start with Lad. He works out on Saturday. I think, you know, Georgia fans obviously know how good an athletic Lad is. I, I think most college football fans are probably in tune to that, but I think the NFL, understandably so, has been a little slow to catching up to what Ladd is going to be able to do, and he's going to run in the four fours and, and you know maybe somehow in the four threes potentially, and you know put together some really impressive shuttle times and, and really show the athleticism that shows up when you watch him play. And then Amarius Mims, I, I again, you know, you see 6, 7, 330 pounds, and you see that on paper, and it, and it can just be hard. I think to conceptualize that he is one of bar none the most impressive like just physical figures that has come through Athens in recent years. And I think when teams and people see him up close in person, they're going to be blown away by it. Uh, You've seen you know his his draft status fluctuate a little bit, and I think I tweeted this when he announced he was going pro back in early January. He's going to be a guy that shows up in Indianapolis, dominates the combine, And, and even though he does have some questions given he only has eight career starts everyone's going to look at him like, that guy has to be a top-20 pick, and maybe potentially he might even push his way to the top of that tackle class with guys like Joe Alt and Olu Fashanu uh, from Penn State there.
0: I'm going to take this to a negative place because I don't think it necessarily needs to go there, but I am a little bit curious about something you brought up. So it is 18 invites for Michigan, which is a huge number. And we look at Georgia, you know, it, it's obvious that Brock Bowers will be a first-round pick. I believe that Amarius Mims is going to be a first-round pick, but it's not obvious that Georgia gets that. I mean, it's not a guarantee that Mims goes in the first round. It's not obvious to get that third first-round pick. You know, I'm a big believer that there's a lot of connection between winning national championships and how much sort of, like, top-end, sort of day-one-type draft talent you're producing. So the fact that Georgia is seemingly a little bit less of a conversation on the NFL draft this year, is that perhaps, you know, the sort of, I guess— example that you need of Georgia being kind of below that national championship level? I think that Michigan probably only ends up getting McCarthy driving the first round, but they do have 18 guys go into the combine. Is that an example of, oh, for this particular year, Georgia wasn't the most talented team in college football? Is that a fair statement to make?
2: I think when you look at Michigan, yeah, and Michigan had sort of built to this over the course of years, not dissimilar to the way I think that 2021 Georgia team had built in a similar manner, and look at a place like Georgia and Michigan are very fundamentally different programs and it goes down to the way they recruit high schools. Georgia goes out and gets the top guys every year, whereas Michigan, you know, they were more traditionally more often than not in the teens in terms of the guys that they were going after. And so I think there's maybe a higher level of buy-in and playing for Hallball. I think there just kind of has to be when you play for him and so, you know, you lose guys to the portal in, you know, you know, at least two that are are at the combine next week in Indianapolis, A.D. Mitchell and Jermaine Burton, who started their careers at Georgia. There are countless other guys, you know, Tresman Marshall who didn't get a combine invite, but had he stuck things out of Georgia, maybe potentially would have as well there. So I do think that factors into it, but, you know, I probably right now, I'd set the over under uh, for first round draft picks for Georgia at two and a half. And obviously you'd have, uh, plus money on the over there. But like if Kamari Lasseter goes out and impresses really well in workouts, and, and I feel confident saying he's going to impress teams when he sits down to interview with them. You heard what Kirby smart had to say at the end of the orange bowl and how important it was for Kamari to go out there and play with his teammates in a game. He certainly didn't have to, uh, you know, is there a world where Georgia possibly gets four first round draft picks? Yeah. I think for that to be the case, Amarius Mims, Kamari Lasseter, and Ladd McConkey all need to ace this combine, and that does put a lot of eggs in this basket. But at the same point in time, Georgia's probably going to have four top 45 picks. and Well, obviously, that's not as glamorous as four first-round picks. Uh, This was still one of the more talented teams. And uh, again, next year, I, I think when you're looking at Georgia and Michigan, Georgia clearly has the better roster. Georgia, I think, is in a much better spot to contend for a national championship next year than Michigan, even in the event that Jim Harbaugh were still at Michigan next season.
0: Let's sort of transition to the new assistant coaches at Georgia. You know, I've made it pretty clear. did not think that James Coley was a good offensive coordinator here, but I think he's more than uh, sort of capable and qualified to be wide receivers coach. In the case of Josh Crawford, it's not a guy that I really knew prior to him being kind of mentioned for this particular job, but I do like his resume. I like the experience that he's gotten in Georgia high school football. That's kind of how he sold himself when he first got hired at Tech, and I think that's a big part of of a selling point for him here at georgia there too i know you've written extensively about this but having some time to sort of think a little bit more about this um i guess what is your sort of overarching takeaway about these sort of two new georgia coaching hires on the offensive side
2: yeah i think if you followed kirby smart long enough now i think you have a pretty good idea of what he looks for in assisting coaches and I think Josh Crawford and James Coley sort of fit both of those. Uh, I'll start with Crawford because maybe that's the easier one to talk about. Uh, He's a guy that has ties to the state of Georgia, and I think that's incredibly important. Uh, A former high school coach in the state uh, has coached at a – Power five or a call an FBS level school in Georgia. So he understands some of the recruiting dynamic of going into a Georgia high school as a Georgia coach. And now is going to have that supercharge at a place like the University of Georgia. Uh, I think at a position like running backs, I think Georgia can maybe take a little bit of a bigger swing here, knowing that if you miss, because Georgia has, you know, seen some assistants cycle out pretty quickly uh, in recent years. Now that running back, obviously, where Del McGee has had that job for eight years. But you can miss there and and not really be set back all that much, in my opinion. So it's a high upside swing. Obviously, Crawford has big shoes to fill in Del McGee. I think his impact on this program obviously extended far beyond what he was doing in terms of just coaching the running backs there. But it's an upside swing and someone who I think can be on this staff for a while and obviously help the Georgia staff as far as Coley. In my mind, BA in the, I guess now five, six years we've worked together. Yeah. I can only recall two real arguments that you and I have had. And okay. one of them was about Well, it wasn't exactly about James Coley. It was after the Kentucky game in 2019. And look, you were a hundred percent, right? Like the offense that day was just not good enough. And yeah. yes, you could not throw in the pouring rain that day. Uh, But your larger point was still correct. And there were major issues there. And I've written about this and discussed it. Like, Yes. uh, You know, James Coley is certainly qualified as a wide receivers coach. And I think you can even look back at the job he did, maybe even bringing guys like Javon Williams and Lawrence Cager and showing and how that can equate to using the transfer portal to get quick fixes there. But you look at that 2019 offense that had Jake Fromm returning as a starting quarterback. You had Deandre Swift, who's now a pro bowler at the NFL level. Andrew Thomas was your starting left tackle. Isaiah Wilson, who was a very good college player, Solomon Kinley there on the offensive line as well. Very deep offensive line that season. And the wide receivers, which Coley was responsible for recruiting for, uh, were just not good enough. Uh, The top three players in terms of yards per game for Georgia in that 2019 season with Lawrence Cager, George Pickens, and Dominic Blaylock. What do all three of those guys have in common? It was all their first yeah. year with the Georgia program. And, and so, and yes, obviously, Jeremiah Holloman getting dismissed from the team obviously, I think, impacted that position there greatly. But I, I don't know how you can look at that and, and what happened at that wide receiver position and some of the misses in evaluations uh, that really, I think, hamstrung that 2019 offense. And, and I'll say this for Coley. I don't think it mattered who that offensive coordinator would have been for Georgia. You could have put Todd Munkin in charge for that 2019 season, but because of the lack of talent Georgia had at the wide receiver position that year, it just so limited what the Bulldogs could do. They only averaged 30.8 points per game. That's by far the fewest uh, outside of the 2016 season that Georgia has averaged in a points per game mark. So uh, you look, you know, Cole is an excellent recruiter. Uh, you know, maybe not so much specifically at the wide receiver position in my mind, but in terms of going into South Florida, going into a place like Texas where you spent the last four seasons at Texas AM, there are obvious benefits there. Uh the other big thing, I think the infrastructure now at Georgia is significantly better than where it was during Coley's first in This is a program that's won two national championships. They know what it takes to get there. There's a sense of stability in this offensive staff. Mike Bobo coming back for his third year total in the program. Todd Hartley, I believe, going into his six years as a tight ends coach at Georgia. There's a sense of familiarity here. And Kirby, I think, uh, you know, even with the change from Monk to Bobo last year, which not all that many people were happy about, George still averaged 40 points per game last season. Yes, it wasn't a perfect showing against Alabama. But I do think Kirby has earned the benefit of the doubt when it comes to hiring coaches and you can look at the way Bobo has done, you can look more, I think, specifically at the job Stacy Sarles has done. But I think people are right to both say, Hey, like Kirby has earned their trust here while also knowing, you know, James Collier, in my opinion, does come with some risks uh, given what we saw him do at Georgia the first time.
0: You mentioned us arguing back in 2019 you talk about dark times compared to the land of milk and honey in which we've lived the last few years. where now it's all about, you know, how many points is Georgia going to win by, you know, back then you're talking about games, in which Georgia was. Unfortunately, scuffling to score points a a, a lot. Dog Nation World Headquarters just behind the scenes sort of screaming about what's going on. It's just kind of funny to think about the world in which we used to live in compared to the world which we sort of mostly live in now. Most Georgia fans have their own story of that there, too. But, boy, a a very different conversation has happened around this program for much of the last few years.
2: Yeah. And and like, you know, the, the Kentucky game again, I I've never, I've never been more wet, uh, in my life than I was during that Kentucky game. I, I kid you not. I had my phone like in a, in a fancy dog nation, waterproof rain jacket. It rained so much that my phone took water damage and stopped working, uh, which also was probably part of the reason I was pretty in a not great mood there after that Kentucky game, but it wasn't just that Kentucky game, uh, Georgia went 12 and two that year. And it was a pretty miserable season the south carolina loss was embarrassing uh you know the texas a&m performance that was really tough to watch and then it, it all crescendos in that game against lsu in the yeah. sec championship game where you know lsu only scored 37 points that day and it felt like they kind of called the dogs off there a little bit I don't know how long Georgia would have had to play that day for them to score 37 points. And, and so, and, you know, yes, you lose Lawrence Cajun injury, you lose Dominic Blaylock there, but I think that only further highlights the issues there. Uh, your larger point, like, again, it, it was such a different time where like you're just trying to celebrate scratching out, you know, one score, two score wins. And now if that happens, if Georgia only wins a game by I, I think four at home against the Texas and team. it's what is wrong with this program uh so we're very glad to be in happier times now uh but it is just a stark reminder of you know you have a few bad recruiting cycles at a position now the transfer portal does make it a little bit easier now to overcome some of that uh just how quickly uh what should be a very potent offense can struggle
0: i want to ask you a question that i asked john stinchcomb yesterday and i have to admit i don't know that i have necessarily a good answer to this question You know, you think about, you know, Crawford and Coley. Crawford's here to, you know, coach running back, something that Del McGee did very well. James Coley's here to bring in elite talent to wide receiver position, something a lot of Georgia fans want. Coley's got a long history of recruiting well in South uh, Florida. Uh, You know, uh, Crawford's got deep ties to South Georgia. That seems like it's really valuable. But is the role of a position coach way different now in the transfer portal era, specifically the NIL era, where – you know, you can know all the guys in Miami you want to know, but it seems like we're led to believe that nil still matters, especially the receiver position, more so than than you know anything else. No matter how deep your relationships are, it still kind of comes down to money when it's all said and done. How different do you think the role of the position coach is now compared to you know what the running backs coach would have been when Del McGee first came here, or historically what the wide receiver coach job has been? How different is the job of being a position coach at a place like Georgia now?
2: you know coley's still gonna have success and i think because of those relationships it's gonna help uh get georgia in the door you're gonna see them on all the top five top four graphics uh, top eight i know we're currently in top 12 season yes. uh but you know most top recruits have georgia in their top 12 uh even if they're not seriously considering them i i think look with wide receiver it's become very obvious uh georgia has a certain nil strategy and when it comes to that at the high school level, they would rather allocate those resources elsewhere. And it's hard to argue uh, against that strategy, given we've seen Georgia win back-to-back national championships in large part because of how strong their defensive line has been, because of how good they've been on the offensive line there. And, and with wide receiver, you know, Auburn this year is going to be a fascinating case for this, because Auburn absolutely spent big, tried to bring in a lot of talented wide receivers. Obviously, Cam Coleman being the most marquee there. The problem for Auburn, in my opinion, entering the season is you can have all that great talent at wide receiver, and they've certainly made an effort to upgrade that position. But at the end of the day, as we touched on in our roundtable, Peyton Thorne is still the guy that is currently set to be throwing the football there, and there's only so much you can do to overcome that. So, you know, again, you know, Coley's going to obviously help in some areas. I think the big thing and the thing I'm most interested in is I thought wide receiver, and this is maybe why I believe Crawford was such an intriguing name at the wide receiver position because of his time at Western Kentucky and because of his time at Georgia Tech, you're just having to find guys and in who aren't going to be obvious stars. And, and so I think someone like Eric Singleton is a great example of that, a guy who was committed to him in Western Kentucky and then did very good things for Georgia Tech as a freshman this past season. Uh, you know, James Coley. Certainly in his first time at Georgia, you know, didn't exactly go in and find a lot of those under the radar, under heralded recruits and coach them up and turn them into big time players. And I think you can even look in like the Todd Munkin era, uh, Ad Mitchell is a name that leaps to mind. Obviously a guy who was obviously much better than what he was as a a recruit. I think Dylan Bell, similarly, a guy that was not super heavily recruited out of Texas certainly by the big power schools in Texas where Coley was at the time. And and he's obviously turned into a very strong player for Georgia. So I, I think it'll be interesting seeing going forward. I don't expect Georgia to start breaking the bank to bring in big name wide receivers. Now, I think with the 2025 class in particular, and I'm be fascinated to see what you and Terrence have to say about this on Thursday. It is a better in-state crop of wide receivers this year for Georgia. And so perhaps that does help uh, Akole land some marquee early recruiting wins. At the same point in time, looking at Georgia's wide receiver depth chart. They've got five guys that are going to be seniors on this team, and that's even before factoring guys who might end up transferring out. So there's going to be a lot of quick turnaround with this wide receiver room over the course of the next year. And Coley's got to hit the ground running. And I think with what we've seen, like this idea that Georgia's going to go out there and, you know, a five star, much less the, the top end guys. Uh, has just run counter to what they've been able to do. So I'm really interested in seeing how Coley goes about attacking some of the issues with this wide receiver room.
0: I think that's really interesting. Let's finish with this. Uh, The official dates have come out for Georgia Spring practice. They're basically what we thought they were going to be. We're only a couple of weeks away from that now, and obviously heading towards that uh, April 13th uh, version of G-Day there, which has been kind of the date that had – been circled for a while now so spring practice is essentially almost upon us here is there anything kind of on your mind about spring practice as of yet as of yet now that the dates have been sort of officially stamped and it's you know going to be when we sort of thought it was going to be uh, anything sort of uh, floating out there for you about spring practice here at the moment
2: uh do you want me to go a player specific that i'm interested in seeing he's going or a position specific i'll let you choose
0: oh i like that give me a player i think that give me a name that that you're excited about that seems like a fun conversation
2: the name i am going to go with here is janelle aguero uh Former top recruit, uh, a guy who I think this time a year ago, and certainly in August, there was the thought that maybe he can potentially push his way into the starting lineup, has an injury in fall camp, and then obviously Tyke Smith emerges as an all-SEC defensive back, really prevents that from being the case. Georgia's got an opening at the safety position. They've also got an opening at the star position. And I'll be really interested in seeing how Georgia chooses to deploy Aguero. Because obviously when you have Malachi Starks and a racer there in the back end, that I think allows you to be a little bit more creative. And with what we've seen from the star position in recent years uh, at Georgia, that usually hasn't been one of the more athletic defensive backs on the field. And that is not the case with Aguero. And so, you know, obviously Georgia has things to work out at that safety position. You know, I think I'll be really interested in seeing what guys like Ja'Cory Thomas and Jake Pope end up doing I think this is a big spring for both of them but Janelle Aguero who could very well just lock up the star position for Georgia or they could try and play him at safety as well I'm really interested in seeing what he does this spring because he's obviously a guy with a ton of talent got a great resume with his time at IMG and then moving back up to Massachusetts for his final year of high school a guy Georgia expected a lot out of early last year And I think checks a lot of the boxes for what Georgia has traditionally gotten out of its very good defensive back play. So of all the guys out there, you know, Jordan Hall is a big one uh, for Georgia, who I think he needs to have a very good spring and offseason as a whole. But I'm really interested in seeing what we see out of Janelle Aguero and how quickly it becomes obvious that, oh, we can go ahead and write and pen that this guy is going to be a starter in this secondary.
0: Yeah, let me just finish by saying this, is that I feel like there's this bad tendency when a guy is like one year removed from being an elite recruit. There's almost like an out of sight, out of mind, not within the program, but within some fans. And we're kind of more infatuated by K.J. Bolden right now than we would have been about Aguero. But I mean, I try to talk to people and I try to talk to people who know people who know people who know people. And like the one thing that I get the sense of is Aguero is every bit the prospect now that he was 12 months ago when he was getting probably more attention than he is getting right now. And that I expect Janelle Aguero to be a big part of the UGA secondary conversation. And, you know, perhaps in a very important role because of what Tyke Smith was able to do for Georgia a year ago. So I love the fact that you bring up Aguero a, because it seems like, there's just a real value in being an elite recruit one year later because not only are you you know, the kind of talent that gave yourself that kind of recruiting status, but you're also a little bit more seasoned now because you've been in the program. It doesn't always work out. I don't know that Marvin Jones Jr. was any better this past year than he was the year before, just being completely honest. But, but a lot of times it really does. And so I think Aguero could be a really, really fun one to watch for sure. I'm glad you bring him up.
2: Yeah, and it's not like Aguero, you know, struggled to adapt to UJ. We were hearing positive things about him. It's just, uh, it, and we'll get to this as we get closer to that point in the calendar. When you're a young player, specifically when you have an injury in August, it I think has gotten to the point now where it can really wipe out yeah. your season. And so you factor that in. I believe he had a hamstring injury. But you add that into the fact that Tyke Smith, very early on last year, was one of Georgia's better defenders, was an all SEC player, someone who's going to be picked in this year's NFL draft. And I don't think a lot of people were saying that. I certainly wasn't, you know, six months ago, much less this time a year ago. So it was no fault of Guerrero's own, other than his body not being able to hold up uh, to a Georgia practice, that prevented him from seeing the field. And so, yes, he's a year removed. And yes, Georgia has brought in another very talented five-star defensive back, as they're always going to do, uh, the coaching staff still feels incredibly strong about what Aguero might be able to give them.
0: Yeah, that's really good stuff. Connor, I love it. I love the conversation. love reading you there at dognation.com. We appreciate insight about all those types of things. And As we uh, continue to talk, we'll obviously do a lot more about what's going to happen for UGA here during spring practice. So thanks for your time, and uh, it'll be G-Day before you know it, of course, and we'll uh, look forward to talking with you back here very soon on Dog Nation Daily once again.
2: Yep, as always, a pleasure. You know, we're here every single Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. I know a lot of people, you know, they move around. They try and occasionally do it. But us here <laughs> at Dog Nation, we are here every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And we're going to keep on doing it. I that.
0: like the Mighty Ducks have, by the way. See, one of the things that we talked to John Stinch about this yesterday, the the chance to see folks kind of creates a little bit of a different type of thing. John's growing a little bit of a beer. We found that out yesterday for a for a dramatic role that he's going to be a part of—that was kind of a cool thing to hear. You're kind of uh, representing the Mighty Ducks, which I uh, certainly very much enjoy. Kind of a uh, a great homage here to—I mean, hey, you're way too young for a Mighty Ducks hat, so this is like a this is like an ironic throwback for you. But for some of us, it takes us back to our actual childhood here. So, uh, pretty interesting stuff.
2: Look, I'm a, I'm a child of the 90s. Uh, I can comfortably say that. And, and look, that the original Mighty Ducks, uh, you never quack alone. That is that is a marquee movie in my life.
0: I love it. Uh, Connor, good stuff. We'll look forward to talking to you soon.
2: As always, it's a pleasure.
0: Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC Group. Yeah, we had the technology to do our guest on video for a long time. We just sort of didn't for, I don't know. I don't really don't know why. We just didn't. Uh, but it's been kind of fun to seeing these folks on uh, video. Now, if you listen podcast, and uh, you know, obviously oh, more than half of you do, so you don't really see the face anyway. You don't really care, but uh, but it's still it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a fun way to uh, do all of that uh, good stuff and uh, really interesting from uh, Connor Riley there. Of course, Georgia football conversations we have them here on Dog Nation Daily each and every day, and on our Dog Nation crews, we're going to be having a whole bunch of those there too. In fact, we want you to be a part of that. Like probably like a tiny little... I, I haven't gotten the word yet that you can't be a part of it, so uh, I'm guessing that if you want to kind of slip in there at the last minute, get your paperwork in, we might get you on board, but coming up pretty soon, we can sort of uh, sort of call this... I mean, the, the ship's going to be sold out, our allotment's going to be sold out, so we are in final days here for sure, but I want to brag on Allure of the Seas nonetheless, because what an unbelievable home that's going to be for us on our Dog Nation cruise, leaving out of Port Canaveral April 22nd, going to Nassau on the Bahamas, going to Perfect Day, Coco Cay, I mean, don't you love this Oasis-class ship? I mean, can you believe the Dog Nation cruise? Humble beginnings. All of a sudden now we're up there doing an Oasis-class ship, one of the largest ships at sea. Two flow riders. You see that if you're watching a video right there on the back of the ship. Um, The aft, I believe, is the the proper uh, sort of seafaring terminology there of the aft of the ship. Two of those uh, uh, flow riders, the surf simulators, an unbelievable uh, experience and you see the, the neighborhood, you're going to see the, the boardwalk neighborhood underneath there. How about the, the view of Allure of the Seas at night? You know, when you walk through uh, the Central Park area, which is kind of right there in the center of the ship, it really feels like you're walking through a big city Central Park or something like that. Uh, when you're enjoying all, all of that, you're just reminded of just how unique the experience is to be one of these Royal Caribbean uh, Oasis class ships, uh, bigger and better than it's ever been before. That's the Dog Nation cruise here for 2024. So Jessica Slater wants to tell you all about that. She can also tell you about the other fun things Royal Caribbean has in store. The recently debuted Icon of the Seas, the upcoming debut for Utopia of the Seas, Hideaway Beach, the brand new uh, addition to Perfect Day Coco Cay. Jessica can tell you all about that. It's a really fun and exciting year for Royal Caribbean here in 2024. You can call Jessica directly, 770-718-9147. 770 718 9147. You can also email her, Jay Slater, at dreamvacations.com. And you can check out the website, royaldogs.com, for more information on our Dog Nation Cruise. All right, let's get ready to go cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. But this was interesting from Paul Feinbaum, talking about uh, the expectations for Kalen DeBoer in his first year at Alabama. And I don't think that Feinbaum is wrong when he said this. He said this on a show this week. It's the playoffs. I mean, there's no getting around it for DeBoer. He says Alabama fans don't accept, well, we had a good season, but that's not the standard Alabama. He says, I, I think really early is where he has to be careful because everything's going to be magnified as we're looking at Nick Saban on our television screens on Saturday morning, getting ready for an Alabama game. I think that's interesting. The presence of Saban on TV probably does create an additional comparison between DeBoer and Saban. And obviously first blush DeBoer is going to be left lacking but I also want to add one point to what uh, Feinbaum is saying there that a lot of the discussion that people are kind of having around you know some of the the college football playoff stuff right now is a little more obvious and self-evident than it perhaps given credit for like something else I think Feinbaum said well if he doesn't do it in three years he's going to be gone the truth is just about any SEC coach who doesn't have some sort of Tangible, significant success in his first 36 months of the job, he's going to be gone as well. And when you say, well, you know, Kalen DeBoer's got to be in the playoffs. Alabama fans won't expect anything less. It's important to keep in mind here, the playoff is now expanded. There are 12 teams in the playoffs. That it won't just be Alabama who has these playoff aspirations. We're going to talk at some point this week, you know, some more of these conference championship odds are coming out. You know, Alabama's kind of in a little bit of a glut, you know, below the Georgia-Texas level they're kind of in a glut of that second tier with the LSUs and the Missouris and the Ole Misses and even, you know, kind of Tennessee and, and that group there too, that it won't just be Alabama moving forward that has playoff aspirations. And that may prove to be one of the trickiest things for Kalen DeBoer is his fans will have big expectations for him, but in terms of his talent level, in terms of what he brings to the table, it's not obvious right now that Alabama is distancing itself from much of its competition and it seems pretty clear that it's a step behind both you know Georgia and Texas at least on paper although admittedly they are the reigning champs of the league we do you know feel obligated to say that speaking of odds and betting that this was an interesting story and this is going to kind of get weird here just for a second but one of the things that I have talked about from time to time is my great concern about college athletics i'm not that worried about guys getting paid never really have been don't care about whoever getting whatever the market dictates for them when it relates to NIL But I do worry at times about the radical change that college sports seems sort of willing to adopt in order to kind of put a sort of compensation framework around the sport. And the thing we've sort of said over and over again is, hey, let's just be careful here. Let's be careful about making too much change too quickly to something that is as popular as college athletics is because some of this stuff sort of spins off some unforeseen circumstances. And like the one point we've sort of said is, I think a really good way to judge the health of college athletics, college football in particular, is, is the size of it. How many guys are signing scholarships in a given year? How many programs are playing at the sort of major college level? How many conferences are existing at the major college level? And I think it's fairly straightforward to say the college football is getting smaller. Now, thus far, getting smaller is not making it less popular, but the contraction of the sport, I think, ought to be a minor concern. We used to have five power conferences. Now we have four. We used to have X number of teams playing at the sort of power level. We have at least one fewer of those now than we used to. You gained SMU, but you lost both Oregon State and Washington State. They essentially don't play at the power level anymore. Uh, So you've reduced the total number of power programs by at least one. In future years, it seems likely you're going to reduce that number even more as the sort of plates continue to shift. That may not seem like too big of a deal right now, but I would say the sport getting smaller – is a little bit of a harbinger for things that could be to come. And one of the things I think is sort of fascinating about this discussion is is that you have a group of people who are like very staunch traditionalists, and they want to sort of protect what college sports has been seemingly at all costs. I would say you've got another group on the other far end who, just to be completely honest with you, I sort of view them as sort of wolves in sheep's clothing. They sort of pretend to be, you know, stakeholders of the sport. They sort of pretend to have, you know, some desire here. But deep down, they probably just want to destroy it because they don't like it. They don't like the people who like college football. They just don't like college athletics in general. They sort of want to tear it down just because they're sort of fascinated by the power to be able to do so. I, I sort of ascribe, you know, a nefarious motives to some people in this discussion. But in the middle, you've got a lot of folks who, I would say, somewhat ambivalent about, you know, hey, if it survives, it's fine. Or if it turns into something that's unrecognizable, maybe that's fine, too. They're just a little bit more ambivalent. And Sometimes it's sort of hard to understand. Well, why don't people care more about the fact that something that's so popular could be changing so much? Let me try to give you two quick stories as to why I think that might be the case. Like I said before, this is where things get just a little bit weird, so I'm going to try to make this as straightforward as possible. There was a story coming out of Ohio the other day, and you may have seen this. It may not have mean, meant much to you, but it meant more to me, and then perhaps you realize. So David Purdom at ESPN writes about this. I'm just going to read you a couple of sentences. That The Ohio Casino Control Commission, that's the people who kind of oversee gambling in Ohio, granted a request by the NCAA to prohibit wagering on prop bets involving collegiate athletes. Basically what this means is, is you're used to in Ohio and a good number of other states there as well, you could go in and you could basically bet the individual performance numbers for players. How many passing yards, how many touchdowns, over, under on that kind of stuff. Ohio is going to prohibit that moving forward. You cannot bet on individual player props involving college athletes anymore. And I believe they become the 25th state to do this. I think that's I think that's the number. Ohio kind of joining a uh, long list of folks who do that. Now, what does this mean? Why does this matter? Let me try to explain something to you. If you saw Billy Walters on the Joe Rogan show the other day, uh, you know he was talking something kind of interesting about how the and Billy Walters is the most famous sports gambler of all time, and so he was kind of talking about Kind of how the 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 sports books operate in like Nevada in particular where he lives, but just in general, and they're actually a little bit more risk averse than you might think. He was talking about how they wait until like the very end to take a max bet on a game or something like that, simply because they're more worried about losing big money by having a bad line. They perhaps are interested in sort of gaining money from having sometimes a lot of money potentially bet on both sides. They're just a little bit more risk averse you might think. And that's where this kind of comes in uh, a little bit here too where that's a lot to regulate. When you have the potential of player props involving 130 different college football teams or you get into you know, other sports potentially there as well, that's just a lot to regulate. That When you look at the future of sports, one thing we sort of see right now is, is that somehow being tethered to gaming and the money that can kind of come in because of betting and gambling and things like that, that's a big part of what a lot of these sports entities sort of see their future, getting involved with as much gambling money as possible. But college athletics and gambling don't always seem to be a very good mix because you have a lot more potential for scandal because you have a lot more entities to watch out for. There are only thirty-two NFL teams. There are one hundred and thirty-something, you know, college teams playing at the major level. When you start bringing in like college basketball things like that, now you're talking about thousands of opportunities to potentially, you know, bet on things, which for sports books is a is a little more difficult to regulate. That that sports books and gambling uh, houses might be somewhat okay if the the world of college athletics was just a little bit smaller because it'd be a little bit less. They had to try to try to regulate and try to oversee. I think that's an important thing to kind of keep in mind here is that in the future, when you think about what college athletics is going to morph into, college football and the size and scope of what it's been in the past is not necessarily a great fit for uh for sports books and betting, even though a lot of people like betting on college athletics because the sheer size of the whole thing creates problems, like the Alabama baseball betting scandal, the stuff that's happened at both Iowa and Iowa State and other examples that uh, of that there as well, that, that there is a little bit of a weird mix right now between college athletics and uh, gambling. And the notion of a weird mix sort of takes us through the other story that's been kind of interesting as of late there as well. I think it was Clay Travis that had this the other day about how eventually – these big streamers such as Netflix or Apple who's kind of involved in the streaming game, Amazon, because of how large they are and I think from a company standpoint, Apple's about 10 times the size that CBS is. They could easily just buy up CBS just like that or you know ESPN something you know the same way that these big streamers are just so much larger than these traditional television networks. So what Clay was making the point of is, hey, eventually one of them is just sort of going to buy the networks and this is sort of the future of televised content. Some big streamer like Netflix, which just signed a contract with WWE or Apple or it's involved in Major League Baseball and MLS and things like that. But Once again, this is where I think you sort of get into a little bit of a weird mix, the same way that sometimes college athletics and gambling, which is sort of all the rage right now in terms of sports revenue, not a great mix for each other. I think the future of sports and the streamers is also a little bit of a weird mix there as well because what has you know big streamers like Apple and Netflix proven to be really interested in? They are mostly interested in things that have global appeal. It's why Apple has a deal with MLS because everybody in the world watches soccer. You know, Netflix just signed with WWE, the, the program known as RAW, And a lot of people not realize this. They think of sort of a redneck like me liking wrestling. But the truth is, is the WWE may be more popular outside of America than it is inside of America. When you look at great Britain and Australia and places like that, huge global appeal for wrestling overall, but how much true global appeal is there for college football? This is sort of a uniquely American enterprise. And so when you, kind of see the somewhat ambivalence to like the new form of whatever college football becomes and how much change it could potentially take on the fact that some people just seem not to care about that very much. You know, perhaps there are reasons they feel that way. It's because of the weird relationship that some aspects of college sports have with the the gambling industry and the weird relationship that uh, college athletics could have with a very globally minded television industry in, in terms of how this could be going forward. A little bit of an interesting mix in terms of how college athletics fits into where some of these trends are perhaps going and uh, something certainly worth watching as we get there. We'll make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. As we wrap up here today, we'll give you a golden shoe. Uh, Always a, uh, a lot of fun to be able to do that, including yesterday during our R.S. Andrews cool down. We talked about, we were talking about court storming and things like that. One of the things that came up was some of the weird things that have happened in Georgia's football history before, including the 1986 Georgia-Auburn game, where Georgia fans and football ran onto the field there at Jordan-Hare Stadium. And as many of you are aware, the Auburn folks sort of turned the water hoses on Georgia as a way of getting them off the field. One of our uh, great folks in our audience, her name's Kathy, uh, Kathy Weinhart, she wrote in to say, I heard you talking about the 1986 Auburn game on my way to work yesterday. My brother, who's Bill Caiaccio from over at WSB, a lot of y'all know him on the radio, he and I were on the field that day and the hoses only went on people in the stands, not on us. She says, typical Auburn behavior. Kathy, you are right about that. and A very funny story to look back on that indeed. And we'll give you a golden shoe there for that. A great blast from the past. Lousy, stinging gators. They're another rival that uh, you can't trust to do anything right. Uh, and 1,207 days, that's how long it's been since Florida's being Georgia, so uh, good stuff there as well. Dog's enjoying supremacy and a lot of its rivalries here right now, so a, a lot of fun. We'll see you all back here tomorrow, Dog Nation Daily. We'll look forward to talking to you then.